0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here uh, today with a special co-host, Miles Snyder, uh, and our guest, Nick. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Nick, why don't we start by you giving a little bit of an introduction about who you are, what you do, and what your story has been getting involved in in Bitcoin and crypto. Great. Thanks.
1: Yeah, I I trade interest rates at a large asset manager uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, so I've been working in traditional finance for uh, several years now and became really interested in Bitcoin about a couple years ago. I've been, you know, following Bitcoin ever since the Mount Gox thing got into some of the uh, financial blogs that I was reading at the time, but I never actually made the effort to understand what Bitcoin was until about 2016. So ever since then I've just been studying Bitcoin and how it works and trying to learn some of the computer science which I don't have any background in computer science and trying to understand its place in the future monetary system. So I come from, you know, a financial background and really happy to finally be talking Bitcoin with people in a public setting.
0: And how is your you know, not only interest in finance, but also like specialty in interest rates, giving you insight into unique insight into into Bitcoin. How have you taken that that perspective and and translated onto into the crypto world?
1: Well, I think the interest rate overlay really started when I heard a video by Andreas Antonopoulos talking about Lightning Network back in 2016. This was before. I believe it was before SegWit was even adopted, so the Lightning Network wasn't necessarily possible at that time, but the white paper was out there and people were starting to talk about it. And he referred to this act of running a node, staking Bitcoin, and earning fees as a potential way of making interest. And that immediately caught my attention. So, you know, I spent the next several months trying to understand, first of all, what was the SegWit? And what was its role in allowing for Lightning Network? What was the Lightning Network? And how, why Andreas referred to this activity as uh, earning interest? And what he's basically talking about is that when you stake capital and you can earn income by doing so in a set amount of time, that's pretty much the definition of interest. And so that's when I really started to dive in and and see, can we form an interest rate framework on top of Bitcoin using the Lightning Network as the, as the starting point. And, and uh, I think we can, and that's what I've been writing about.
2: So as, as you know, there's a lot of different sort of visions of Bitcoin, and some of these narratives have shifted over time. But how would you describe your view of Bitcoin and what it can become? So
1: Bitcoin, uh, first and foremost, is a digital sound money. And that, to me, has never been done before. And that's the innovation here it is a it is the first example of a scarce digital money, and uh, its monetary policy, which is the supply schedule and its difficulty adjustment, are really I think uh, things to marvel at. So I have I have a, a formal education in uh, economics, but I stud but I studied kind of the modern textbook economics in college, and not necessarily the Austrian school. But I did learn some of the Austrian school stuff at the same time uh, on the side. And I did learn a lot about gold and its role in the monetary system. And uh, so I come from a background of uh, advocating for sound money. And I think that's what Bitcoin is to me. And and, uh, that's why it's worth building on top of.
0: Can you say more about why you you mentioned that you think your work involves like, can we How do I describe it? Have interest rates on top of, on top of Bitcoin or or how would you describe it?
1: Right. So in the lightning network, um, you can elect to stake Bitcoin to payment channels and charge routing fees to anybody who wants to use your payment channels in a transaction. And so it's that simple act of earning transaction fees with your lightning node that it allows for an income component to an interest calculation. Then all you need is the amount of money that you started with, your your Bitcoin that you stake, uh, the routing fees that you collect, and that's your income, and the time it took to do so. And those are the only three components that you need to uh, start calculating an interest rate. So it's not necessarily an interest rate framework on top of Bitcoin's base layer. What I'm referring to is something on top of Lightning Network. And every Lightning uh, payment channel has a a time component to it, which uh, gives us that uh, time variable in an interest rate calculation.
0: And can you say a bit more, like draw out the conclusion a little bit, like why does this matter so much? Why is it game changing if you can do that? Sure. So the the great thing about Lightning Network is that you
1: still maintain custody of your own private keys. And so anybody can earn, uh earn interest on their Bitcoin by lending their Bitcoin directly. And what I mean by that is you actually send your Bitcoin to somebody, use the blockchain and broadcast a transaction that Bitcoin is no longer with you, it's with your counterparty. You're taking counterparty default risk in that situation and you hope That your counterparty pays you back your Bitcoin and the interest that you agreed to at the beginning of that transaction. So that's possible today, and that was possible before Lightning Network. Lightning Network is actually short-term leasing of your Bitcoin to the network for liquidity purposes, but you never actually have to relinquish your private keys. You never have to broadcast a transaction where you're, you're parting ways with your Bitcoin. And so that's really the unique thing here is that we can start to calculate an interest rate that you can earn on Lightning Network without ever having to give up custody of your private keys. Now, this is not to say that the Lightning Network is risk free. There's definitely some security risk, some channel state risk, and some, you know, computer science expertise that you have to bring right now to the network in order to make sure that you can, you, you get your principal back, meaning that the Bitcoin that you staked is actually yours. There's no guarantee that you're going to make any fees on it, but at least you're guaranteed that you can uh, call back your Bitcoin to yourself. All that has security risk, but it doesn't have that explicit counterparty risk. And that's why I think uh, Lightning Network is so unique.
0: And uh, I don't mean to be dense, but for, for the audience, draw out the conclusion even further. Why, why does it matter that we can calculate interest rates with, you know, without counterparty risk, what are the implications of that? What what can we then go do? Sure. So uh, in traditional finance, we use uh, something called a
1: reference rate. And what that is, is that's actually uh, the lowest counterparty risk that you can take. For example, U.S. Treasuries, that's considered the reference rate or the benchmark rate in most of uh, U.S. dollar capital markets. Now, other entities, if they want to borrow they're going to borrow at the U.S. Treasury borrowing rate plus a credit spread. And that credit spread credit spread represents the difference in creditworthiness of the U.S. government and whatever borrowing entity. So let's say Walmart, for example. So the U.S. Treasury borrows at 3% from the market, and Walmart is going to say, I'm going to borrow at 3%. I'm going to borrow at Treasuries plus 1%. So they'll be borrowing at 4%. But if the U.S. Treasury happened to be borrowing at 2.5% the next day, Walmart Walmart would only be borrowing at 3.5%. So the spread that entities uh, pay is always relative to something, and that something is usually the lowest counterparty risk perceived by the market. So what I'm saying about Lightning Network is maybe we can use a synthesis of these rates that people are earning with very low risk on the Lightning Network and use those as reference rates for borrowing outside of the Lightning Network, meaning that you're actually taking counterparty risk.
2: So for the audience, can you explain to us a little bit about what is the current state of the Lightning Network and how do you see it evolving over the next, call it, six months, 12 months, 18 months? And even before that, can you can you define more about just the Lightning Network in general
0: and why it matters and and then get into that? Right. So Bitcoin's base layer
1: is slow and clunky and expensive. That, that's ge- the general, you know, critique sometimes of Bitcoin from people that uh, might not understand the
0: potential layers on top of Bitcoin. Can so you it's, zoom out even a little bit further for people who don't understand what base layer means, and maybe you can compare it with with gold, just like right. different layers okay. of Bitcoin and gold.
1: Right. So uh, let's start with gold as an analogy. So gold, when when it's uh, taken out of the ground. Uh, in its raw form, can be considered the base layer of gold, right? We know that it is an element on the periodic table, and but to actually use that uh, gold nuggets out of the ground as money is not necessarily realistic. So what do we do? We take it to the next layer and we melt it down and we make it uniform uh, coins, bars with standardized weights and measures and purity. And then we can start to use that as physical money and exchange it with each other as long as we trust the mint that it comes from that they're using real gold but you know at a certain point even the physical metal starts to become clunky and expensive to use if you want to do you know let's say cross-border transactions you're not going to uh, you know mail gold or put gold on a ship go- going back and forth every time you want to do a transaction so we take gold on deposit and we turn it into a paper gold certificate and then the gold certificate can then move faster Because you don't have to actually lug the metal around. And so that's kind of how money evolves in layers. And I think gold is a great analogy because it shows you that we're not actually using the base layer to transact with each other in gold. We're using higher layers where the transactions can be a lot quicker. So to take that as an analogy and put it on top of Bitcoin, Bitcoin's base layer is the protocol where Bitcoin moves Uh, to and from, uh, you know, counterparties, and those transactions are broadcast to everybody in the network. And they it takes proof of proof of work to confirm those transactions. And so it generally just takes time and energy to update the Bitcoin ledger. And that process itself is slow, right? Bitcoin confirmations are only once every 10 minutes on average. And it is considered best practice to wait up to six confirmations before you consider that Bitcoin rightfully yours and not able to be double spent. So that doesn't necessarily make sense, uh, to, to, it doesn't make, make sense to use Bit for everyday transactions. Like if you go to a merchant and he charges you for something, he doesn't want to have to wait one hour to, uh, make sure that that Bitcoin is his, right? So, what the Lightning Network is, it's a solution proposed by Poon and Dryja a couple years ago, and it allows you to take real Bitcoin into this peer-to-peer network on top of Bitcoin and allow for instant transactions using smart contracts. And so uh, the, the the Lightning Network is a way to use real Bitcoin, but instantaneously, because you know the person bringing Bitcoin into the Lightning Network is bringing real Bitcoin because the transactions in Lightning Network are real Bitcoin transactions. They just have smart contract features to them.
0: What is the was the critique of, of gold, or, or was it why, why it sort of quote unquote failed? Was that the third layer, or you know, or, or the most on top layer perhaps? was centralized, or had, like became centralized and thus became manipulated by by governments? It-
2: well. It,
1: it, 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 the the critique of gold is uh, there were a couple things one uh, the f- finite nature of gold doesn't allow for the fractional reserve type of expansion that we have today on a, on a non-gold standard because when things were anchored by gold there was still even though fractional reserve uh, lending happened it was harder to do so because the the Underpinning of the system was actually physical gold. So that was one critique. And the other is that governments can't print gold, right? And so if governments want to finance themselves today, what they do is they print money or they issue debt, and let's say, you know, investors buy it, including their own central bank. That's one way of basically governments being able to print money. And so Uh, You can't do that with gold because you can't print gold. So it's restrictive to governments. It's considered restrictive to money creation. And so those are a couple of the knocks on gold.
0: And I guess what I'm curious about is, is there a similar risk with with Bitcoin? That if, you know, on on additional layers, is there a risk of centralization there? I think
1: that there is definitely a risk of centralization on higher layers of Bitcoin. Uh, But the unique thing about Lightning Network is that you can't create in the Lightning Network that doesn't exist. So let's say, you know, Bitcoin, th- there are layers on top of Lightning Network or different layers on top of Bitcoin. And let's say that those layers are using some sort of token or side. Those could potentially be fractionally reserved and you wouldn't necessarily be dealing with real Bitcoin at that point. So it's definitely possible and probable that people try to fractionally reserve Bitcoin. On higher layers, but Lightning Network is not that. And uh, that's kind of why I've chosen to work on Lightning Network and study Lightning Network and how it can help us is is because we're not introducing any sort of fractional reserve yet on Lightning Network.
0: Do you want to talk about what the technical innovation is behind, behind Lightning? So
1: I'm not a computer science expert. And so uh, the the deep technicals of how Lightning Network work are probably best described uh, by other people. But the way that I've understood Lightning Network is that it uses some fundamental Bitcoin innovations and combines them together. So a couple of them are time locks and multi signature contracts. So these two features, when combined together, uh, help uh, help enforce this routed network where people are sending bitcoin to each other and they can actually use multiple hops to send the money from point a to point b and never have to worry that someone along the way is going to steal their bitcoin without giving them some sort of recourse so it's again i I, i'm not going to be able to explain it as well as someone who writes code can but that's the way i understand lightning network
2: yeah, I think a, a, another important thing to point out is that there is a single on-chain transaction that opens up a Lightning channel and then another on-chain transaction that closes out a Lightning channel. But, you know, in between there, you could have potentially millions of transactions that take place off-chain and then are then settled on the main chain.
1: That's um, right. And one of one of my articles, I discuss uh, this difference where I consider Bitcoin on the base layer to be your settled Bitcoin, right? That's how how that's what happens when you get multiple confirmations that bitcoin is yours and as long as you don't relinquish those private keys uh, that bitcoin is yours But, but in the lightning network those transactions are unsettled so like you mentioned you open a transaction to start conducting activity and that bitcoin can be yours when you close the when you close the channel and that that transaction is broadcast to the blockchain. So I kind of think of Lightning Network as unsettled Bitcoin.
0: Cool. So going back to Miles' original question, what is the state of Lightning Lightning Network today, and how do you expect it to evolve over the next couple of years? Right. So today, it's
1: definitely in a very early experimental phase, so much so that I don't have a Lightning Node because I don't think that with uh, without computer science expertise, uh, I would be able to do any sort of uh, lightning activity safely. So uh, it's definitely very early stages, but the excitement around lightning development is it's pretty explosive. A lot of the innovation that's going on is building on top of lightning. And I think that's because people understand that we can use higher layers for more instantaneous transactions and use the base layer periodically when we need to, to take final settlement. And that model of building out a financial system, I think people are are you know, latching onto that and uh, the the development is pretty exciting. Now, where I think it's going to go in 6, 12, 18 months, I would say that you you're probably going to see over the next 12 to 18 months uh, adoption from some of the merchants and consumer channels that are currently using proper Bitcoin. So they'll kind of migrate to Lightning or allow Lightning to happen. Uh, I would love to see some of the major wallet producers introduce Lightning features. I know that one of the the larger wallet providers in the space is working on their own implementation of Lightning. So that would be a fourth uh, implementation on top of the three that we have from Blockstream and Lightning Labs and then the French team Asonk uh, in France. Uh, so I I really think that you know the the adoption is going to be slow. See, Lightning Network needs its own network effects because it's a peer-to-peer network using real Bitcoin. So Bitcoin took you know ten years to get where it is today and you know get the network effects that it does. So do I think it's going to take ten years? No, I don't. But uh, it's definitely going to take some time for Lightning itself to get that groundswell of user base.
2: So thinking a little bit longer term we've talked about some of the stuff that makes lightning really exciting and how it could improve upon the user experience and just the general throughput of it, of bitcoin but you mentioned that you sort of became interested in Bitcoin because of the sound money ethos and the fixed supply. And do you worry at all about the incentives for miners in a, you know, when the when the block rewards decrease and then disappear um, and they're subsisting off of transaction fees alone and you have a lot of the activity taking place off-chain on the Lightning Network? Um, do you think that's going to at all affect the security or the miner incentives of Bitcoin in the long term?
1: Well, what I hope, to see is the on-chain transactions then getting way more expensive, in order to compensate the miners for for providing proof of work. So, uh, you know, it's kind of something that the market's just going to have to determine for itself. And if the mining reward just isn't there, and the fee, the sum of the all the fees just isn't there, then miners will leave the network, and difficulty will decrease. And you know, the system kind of. It's built in that it'll just adjust as it goes. I'm not sure that. I'm not. I don't think that the fees will be so low that miners leave the network. I think that the fees will actually get more expensive in the future as long as each transaction that's posted to the base layer contains a mini economy within it. So, you know, let's say, you know, 10,000 different Lightning transactions encapsulated in one on-chain transaction. And and in the end everybody benefits because the, you know, this the transaction fee divided by 10,000 is still less than you would have paid on-chain before the lightning network. So,
0: you know, that's kind of my optimistic way of looking at the future. Zooming out a little bit, um we are talking about Bitcoin as sound money. Um I feel like there's a, you know, a, a camp within Ethereum that that wants to make Ethereum sound money maybe, maybe as the world's computer narrative is, is losing steam miles can you articulate what is the argument for
2: uh, for ethereum, ethereum as sound money and then perhaps nick can respond to it sure i think the argument from the ethereum crowd kind of goes along the lines of that first ethereum becomes the reserve currency within the ethereum ecosystem so you're already seeing that happening i mean throughout 2017 you saw it used as the quote-unquote reserve currency for icos And then later, sort of the currency that's used within dApps. And obviously it's also the base currency that powers the entire network in the sense that you pay miners to provide computation in the form of gas, which is paid in Ether. But I, I think the Ethereum crowd also realizes that, especially as they transition to, to proof of stake, the, the importance of, of having a token that accrues a lot of value, um, is, you know paramount because in a proof of stake system um, you need it to be valuable in order to to be expensive to attack and so you're seeing some of the ethereum crowd kind of steer the the ship towards either you know having ethereum be not necessarily fixed supply but but very low inflation and trying to maximize its properties as a store of value in addition to just being this like you know oil for the, for the Ethereum machine. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with, with the way that the the direction they're taking in terms of, um, in terms of supply. But, but I also think that there's another line of thinking, which is that because Ethereum is sort of a more general purpose platform, that it's more usable for a lot of different things and thus is sort of going to bootstrap uh, itself off of that utility and that, and then eventually reach that, uh, that store of value status, um, because people are actually using it and, and holding it for use within this digital economy. Whereas, uh, Bitcoin is taking kind of a different approach where they're saying we're going to maximize for, for store of value properties and sort of go. It's like a more of a bottom up approach rather than top-down approach. Nick, how would you respond to that?
1: Well, the, the thing that attracted me about Bitcoin from the beginning was the 21 million max and the predetermined supply schedule. I just thought that that was really uh, fascinating and unique. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know much about Ethereum at all. I do know that there isn't a supply cap, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that that actually you know stopped me from diving into Ethereum and just focus on Bitcoin. It was the supply max, and I just kind of it it clicked for me and made sense that this was you know in you know in the Genesis block, the quote that about the bail, uh, the bailouts that that and the supply max told me that this was something that I needed to pay attention to and, and so that's why I focus on Bitcoin. I I, and I I apologize, but I just don't know really anything about Ethereum.
2: No, that's okay. I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is that people think about the question of of like fixed supply or supply cap just in terms of like traditional economics, but in these cryptocurrency networks, there's also this additional factor of minor incentives, um, and we touched on this briefly earlier. But how how do you think about that with regards to to fix supply,
1: the the minor incentive specifically. Yeah. Um. I mean. I think that the if you look at a chart of the hash rate on Bitcoin, uh, it seems to be steady as she goes. And I don't. I don't know how miners are going to behave at each each time the block reward is halved, but we have had now two instances of a block reward halving, and you know in subsequent months hash rate went up and price went up also so i i just i think it's working so far and the miner incentives are there the there you know we had that very interesting you know segwit battle where the miners were holding out and we now find find out that some of it may have been uh, motivated by uh, the ASIC the ASIC boost saga there. But in the end, you know, the users are the ones that that could mandate the change to Bitcoin and the miners just kind of had to mine the chain that the users wanted to use. So I see the miners more as a service provider. And, you know, they perform an absolutely essential function. But, you know, they're paid by the people that use the network.
2: Got it, so as we said earlier, I mean it seems likely that the fees on the on the base layer are going to increase significantly, and that will kind of make that the final settlement layer, and some of the layers above will be sort of have have higher throughput and, and lower fees and be more used. If that's like the the long run vision for for Bitcoin, then it makes sense that a lot of people would sort of be priced out of the base layer. Um, which means they would sort of conduct business primarily on, um, these upper layers and potentially even be onboarded directly onto these second layers. So how do you think about if a user is, is primarily, you know, conducting economic activity on these upper layers and they're directly onboarded onto these upper layers and maybe they don't even have an, um, enough Bitcoin to afford to close out a transaction on the base layer? Do you still think of them as owning Bitcoin? And in your view, to what extent do those upper layer systems come to, you know, sort of mirror the the current centralized setup of the financial system? And in what ways are they importantly different?
1: Sure. So I think that what we're talking about is something that's way in the future where Lightning Network is really widely used because... Today, you can still use Bitcoin and use the base layer and not really pay that much. And everybody can maintain their financial sovereignty. So in a world where transactions are so expensive uh, to use the base layer that you're forced onto the Lightning Network or even higher layers where, like you said, you're not actually owning real Bitcoin, but you just are using uh, some third party service that owns Bitcoin and they give you a claim against their Bitcoin for a period of time. In those scenarios, no, I, I totally agree. Those people are not participating in real Bitcoin. But I think that those, th- that day is so far into the future in terms of, you know, where we are currently that, you know, I think that people that really want to maintain their financial sovereignty are going to have to are going to have to take a stake in Bitcoin before that happens. So sometime in the next several years, if you don't actually get your hands on real Bitcoin, you might never be able to use it because you'll be priced out. And that's kind of the way I see it evolving. And again, this is over a very long-term time horizon.
2: Do you think that Bitcoin banks will be a thing? And if so, what do you see those looking like? absolutely at the
1: beginning i think they they'll resemble lightning nodes. to be honest where they'll keep bitcoin in cold storage and take a little bit of that bitcoin and put it in a lightning node facilitate economic activity by charging fees and uh you know kind of be that liquidity provider i think that will be one of the first functions
0: of bitcoin banks and can you define just really quick what a bitcoin bank means for the audience
1: well honestly, to me, it means that your balance sheet is denominated in Bitcoin. Your your assets are in Bitcoin and your liabilities are in Bitcoin. To me, that would constitute a Bitcoin bank. And so, you know, there are pseudo Bitcoin banks now who who are, you know, taking uh, Bitcoin on deposit and lending out Bitcoin in some sort of direct lending, um, you know, fashion. And, you know, those guys can start up a business any day. I mean, really, it's, comes down to then the legality of it and whatever jurisdiction you're in, but you know in theory anybody can take Bitcoin and lend it out and kind of conduct activity as a bank. So I, I'm not I'm not so sure that the Lightning Node will be able to earn somebody that much money today, and that's why a Bitcoin bank probably would want to engage in direct lending to make any sort of interest. But again, you're taking counterparty risk there, just like any lending institution
0: would do. And do you think we'll have fractional reserve banking uh, on top of Bitcoin? I do eventually, but I,
1: I hope and anticipate that that fractional reserve activity will not uh, appear as Bitcoin to people. And what I mean by that is if you're borrowing from a bank, you know, they're not going to – and they're doing it in a fractionally reserved way – they're not going to be sending you Bitcoin and broadcasting it to the base layer because they won't be able to because it's fractionally reserved. right? If, you, if they take 10 Bitcoin on deposit and they lend out 100 Bitcoin, how do you do that? It's not physically possible because you can't send 10 Bitcoin to 10 different people if you only have 10 Bitcoin. So. In that scenario, I do envision fractional reserves, fractional reserve lending will happen on top of Bitcoin. But those ten people that receive ten Bitcoin each on top of the reserves are not going to be receiving ten Bitcoin each. They're going to be receiving ten, you know, you know, example bank dollars or let's, you know, how whatever unit you want to say. And those, you know, that money that's lent out into the into the system will trade at some sort of discount to real Bitcoin because you know that there's some sort of fractional reserve system associated with it so you know maybe it'll evolve like that but you know fractional reserve lending on top of bitcoin cannot appear to everybody or cannot appear to somebody with a fully validating node as real bitcoin it'll have to it'll have to be you know something else
2: do you think that the auditable nature of these things and sort of the competitive nature of Bitcoin banks will, will make it a superior fractional reserve system to what's existed in the past? Potentially, yes, because,
1: you know, if if you're a bank and you say, I'm lending at five to one leverage, right, and I have 100 Bitcoin on deposit, so I'm going to lend 500 Bitcoin worth of money into the system and you prove with public key, you know, disclosure that you have that 100 Bitcoin on deposit and you show that it's, you know, static on the blockchain. Yes, that could potentially improve transparency into a fractional reserve system and actually be better than potentially the current system that we have where you, you know, a bank publishes a quarterly report and shows that, you know, the reserves that they have. Uh, on deposit with uh, their central bank and the treasury holdings that they own. But, you know, how do you really know? How do we really have that transparency into uh, you know a bank's balance sheet uh, versus if a bank
0: publicly disclosed their public key set? I want to get into some of your some of your, your writings. One is the, the time value of Bitcoin and the other is the Bitcoin risk spectrum. Perhaps we start your, your Twitter handle is, is the time value uh, of, of Bitcoin what does that mean to you and why is that such a fundamental concept or maybe talk a little bit about what you're trying to achieve in that piece from what we haven't so, discussed yet? So from,
1: uh, from, uh, you know, I studied finance in school and, you know, I come from a financial background. The foundation of finance is time value and risk premium. And these are the the two core concepts that you learn, you know, at the beginning where money today is worth something different than money in the future and that trade off between today and tomorrow is called time value and you know that underpins the entire lending market and the entire financial system and lightning network has inspired me to find time value on bitcoin and you know that's it, i i wrote this uh, time value paper over the course of several months and it was actually much much longer you know a few weeks before i decided to publish it and what I decided to do is cut you know cut down all the fat and just present what is what do I think time value is on Bitcoin and why do I think it's important and why do I think we need to capture it and uh, then you know I now that I put the idea out there and uh, people actually seem to want to calculate this, then I uh, went into further explanations of what I think we can do with it. And and then some of the specifics of how we can actually build this rate out. So the Bitcoin risk spectrum is where I get into what I think we can use this time value calculation for. And that's when I was talking a little bit earlier about reference rates, where if enough nodes are earning interest on the Lightning Network uh, in a very low risk environment or manner, they can all publish this rate to each other. And we can see, we can get an observable expected interest rate using the Lightning Network and use that as a reference rate for additional capital market lending activity.
2: Just to step in here, is that something that can be assessed just by observing the network or does it actually require that all the node operators publish their rates?
1: So that's something that I'm diving into uh, as we speak. And According to some of the Lightning devs that I've talked to, it's not possible to observe it from from afar. Because Lightning Network works with onion routing, my understanding is that only you as a node know what you're earning. And it's not observable from the outside. So this introduces a layer of or a level of trust that would have to be associated with any sort of Lightning Network reference rate and that's something that i would love to see devs you know dive into if this is something that you you can publish but you can cryptographically prove that you did this right and then publish it to each other maybe you can't maybe you can't observe someone else but if they publish their rate and it's has some sort of hash on it you can verify that that is a, a real rate that they earned whether or not that's possible i don't know right now and uh, i think that you know, if it is, we need to flesh out what that'll look like. And if, if it isn't, we'll also need to, you know, assess, okay, well, we're, we're starting to trust each other now in terms of what rate we're uh, publishing to each other. And, you know, have some sort of mechanism where we can verify or sift through the bad data and, and capture the good data. So again, it's very early stages. And these are some of the ideas that I've I'm really happy to hear people discussing.
0: You you have a piece uh, on the way that, that discusses ETFs. Can, can you say a little bit about your, your thoughts there? Sure. So I think ETFs are going to happen. I
1: don't have any knowledge of the
0: goings okay, so on at the SEC. The what an ETF is and, and why it's it matters for crypto. And, you know, people have been trying to get it passed for a long time.
1: Absolutely. So. An ETF stands for an exchange-traded fund, and what it is, it's a financial vehicle that's generally traded on stock markets, but gives access to a basket of investments. So a good example of an ETF that has some corollary to Bitcoin is an ETF called GLD. And what that is, it's a trust that holds physical gold bars in a vault And you have issued shares to investors. Investors can buy those shares on the stock market, and what they're owning is a claim on a trust that has gold in a vault. So you're you're layers away uh, from the physical gold itself, but you do have some claim on it, and some strong regulatory markets to enforce that you may get that gold or the dollar value of it if uh, if you want to, and so. The, the ETF universe has really exploded over the last decade as people are looking for efficient ways to gain access to a basket of investments so another example of an ETF is something called spiders spdr what that is it's a it's an ETF that buys all 500 stocks in the S&P 500 and allows you to do something that used to take a lot of money because uh, you had to balance it and you could you can buy fractions of a share it took a lot of time and it and it took a lot of commissions and it took a lot of expertise and now you can do it just by you know buying the SPDR really quickly and so the, and a bitcoin ETF there are a few different ones that are proposed some are going to own actual bitcoin stored in cold storage in a trust the same way I described that GLD situation where people own claims on a trust that holds physical gold uh and there are other ETFs that are being proposed that are only going to own futures contracts so those are financial instruments that price as a derivative on a bitcoin index and so those bitcoin ETFs are not owning real bitcoin they're owning bitcoin futures that trade on uh, the CME for example so The reason that Bitcoin ETFs are very important, I think, is that it's going to give people access to own Bitcoin that didn't have access to it before because their money is locked up in, let's say, 401k accounts that can only buy investments in publicly traded markets. Now, a lot of the criticisms of Bitcoin ETFs are that it's not real Bitcoin, It's not not fitting the ethos of store your own private keys. We don't need ETFs to survive. Now, all of those things are actually true where we Bitcoin doesn't need ETFs to survive. It's survived for 10 years without ETFs and it doesn't need them to survive. No, you do not own real Bitcoin. If you own a Bitcoin ETF, you own a claim at best on Bitcoin or Bitcoin futures. And so These criticisms are all valid of ETFs, but I think ETFs are going to happen and they are going to be important for adoption because it's going to give people access to Bitcoin that previously didn't have access to it. So if you tell somebody to start up a Coinbase account or a Gemini account, you know, to buy Bitcoin and then you and then you advocate you know, but you better take custody of that Bitcoin too, because you don't want to trust exchanges you You are cutting out you know a vast majority of the world as your potential buyers because you are trying to get them to sign up for a financial platform that they don 't already have access to. And you're asking them to have private key management expertise, which for me, I don't have any computer science expertise and it took me months to learn how to do. So I just think BTFs are going to be huge for adoption because people are going to buy it that would have never otherwise bought Bitcoin. Now, what I hope for is that Bitcoin ETFs that actually hold physical private keys and disclose their public key set to the public on a regular basis to prove they actually have the Bitcoin those ETFs I would love to see flourish and become partners with Bitcoiners in that they are good actors in the space. They're not trying to issue ETFs and then you know, only go buy a little bit of Bitcoin or even take that Bitcoin and then lend it out to try to make money two different ways. I know that's a long explanation, but that's kind of what I hope for the future of Bitcoin ETFs.
0: And, and Tyler and Cameron, Michael Voss have been trying to get this passed for quite some time. I guess what's what's changed that will will enable us? And is this how institutions are going to be onboarded to Bitcoin? Uh,
1: okay, so two, two things there. The first thing about the Gemini ETF, I don't think that it's what's changed since then. It's more what was that ETF and why did regulators say we don't want to approve this? And I think it's because they had opportunities to have checks and balances that they passed up on so they were going to hold the bitcoin at their gemini cold storage solution of their own exchange and they were going to price the bitcoin on a daily basis off of their gemini price index and so It's very easy to, you know, for them to do both of those things because those are businesses that they already have. So to add the ETF to it would have been, you know, relatively easy for them. They wouldn't have to find a trust and start a new relationship and learn, uh, you know, the trust, the way that the trust is going to store private keys. They were going to do all of that themselves. And I think that kind of triple centralization without checks and balances was the nail in the coffin for the Gemini ETF uh, or the, the Winklevoss. Uh, that's kind of my theory there on why it was denied. I think that future ETFs will be approved. Once they prove they can conduct the custody aspect, the pricing aspect, and the ETF aspect, all as entities that have some sort of checks and balances between them. And your second question was...
0: I don't remember. Uh is this how institutions will be onboarded to, to Bitcoin? Oh.
1: Just... Yes. Yes. I think that institutions will buy ETFs as a way to gain exposure to Bitcoin. So I think that institutions will rely on the ETF manager for private key storage. And I think that they will also hold Bitcoin at custodians. Now, the custodian the custodian ecosystem in Bitcoin really is starting to gain traction, but more mainly from an exchange standpoint. So both Gemini and Coinbase have these custodial solutions for institutions. But I think once bigger, more established financial institutions, for example, Fidelity, Northern Trust, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, these types of entities that are all entering crypto, as they say, I think that them providing private key storage expertise is something that will happen uh, in the next few years here. And I think that those type of institutional custodians that uh, big institutions are used to, and uh, these types of ETFs are definitely ways that institutions will get involved.
0: I'm I'm curious to ask a few questions related to your, your perch sitting at, you know, right in the, the thick of midst of, you know, traditional finance, but also, Deep in crypto. You could just expound a little bit on your thought. Like, what are sort of the misconceptions you think, you traditional finance has, has around crypto and and vice versa? You know, are, are, are big financial institutions like the ones you mentioned earlier going to be major players in the space? Are they going to get displaced? Like, how, how do you see your decentralized finance playing a role as it relates to your traditional Wall Street finance?
1: Well, you know, I look at the asset base of traditional finance, and we're talking hundreds of trillions of dollars. And, you know, those are mostly denominated in U.S. dollars, but also, you know, the euro, the yen, et cetera, et cetera, play, play big parts there. And Bitcoin is just so tiny that it doesn't even register uh, on the radar of most institutions that have portfolios to allocate. They may actually already own Bitcoin by way of a small stake in a venture capital fund that owns a small stake in a crypto company that might have some Bitcoin in reserves. So they might I mean they honestly might already own it in a very, very small amount and may be not even necessarily aware of it. But to get from there to actually taking custody of Bitcoin let's say out of fidelity one day or you know a large investment bank that you know is developing some sort of private key management expertise we're just so far away from that and honestly most people in finance have no idea uh, what bitcoin, how bitcoin works and what it what actually private public key cryptography is and what proof of work is and the process of mining and uh, the prevention of double spending they actually, most people, to be fair, in traditional finance have no idea of any of these things. They know well, they know all about, you know, the Bitcoin price and the fact that there are these hundreds of cryptocurrencies and they've heard of Ethereum and they may have heard of, you know, other cryptocurrencies, but uh, I just don't think that they they don't see it yet. It's re- I'm, I, I have tunnel vision because, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, takes up, you know, most of my free time. And uh, in, in terms of what I'm reading about, but traditional finance, no, they they haven't really arrived yet.
0: And uh, so I, I read this one Medium post that said basically was the thesis was you know uncensored money and distributed applications were were great concepts, but have found uh, you know few real world applications. But the the real killer app of blockchain is actually trading, and Wall Street is best positioned to take advantage of it. I'm just curious, I, like how you think, like looking at five years out, ten years out maybe even a bit longer, like what chunk of Wall Street has has crypto or blockchain displaced or, or disrupted or vice versa? What chunk of crypto or blockchain has, has Wall Street, you know, stolen or, or won over? Yeah,
1: you know, that's a great
0: question. First of all, in terms of
1: trading, yes, these guys are going to come in because there's there's a bid-ask spread to be made. <laughs> these guys will come in and, and try to capture that bid-ask spread. And so I definitely see trading as something that these guys will get involved uh, with. Uh, early on. But in terms of, you know, Bitcoin settlement functionality, actually replacing some of the stuff that goes on in traditional finance, I do hope to see that down the road. But I'm, I'm just not sure that I'm just not sure that that's going to come anytime soon. Uh, I think Bitcoin will evolve as its own ecosystem. And uh, Wall Street will just have to, you know, participate in as much as they can. Um, But they haven't shown any early desire to, you know, take Bitcoin on deposit and run a full node. So I know that, you know, there are, you know, we we heard about Fidelity mining Bitcoin, right? So they're obviously running a node and uh, experimenting with that technology. But, you know, Northern Trust, who just announced they're, you know, diving into cryptocurrency hedge fund administration activities. They said they're not taking any custody of Bitcoin right now or they don't necessarily have any plans to do so in the near future. So even companies that are getting involved are doing so just by dipping their toe in and not actually spinning up a full node and actually getting involved in the blockchain. So just being involved from the
0: periphery. Say more a little bit about what, what is your vision of of Bitcoin? What are sort of the, the, like the baby steps or the, like the, the, the evolution it needs to take in order to, to get there? Like, in next, you know, decade or two decades, like what what are the steps in terms of how do you think it's going to shake out? Oh,
1: I think that Bitcoin will continue to evolve as a reserve asset and not necessarily a reserve currency yet. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have currencies all around the world and, you know, large fluctuations in markets all around the world that drives people to seek safe investments. Now, Bitcoin's volatility is going to prevent a lot of people from calling it a safe investment. Uh, But I see Bitcoin evolving as a safe investment because there is no counterparty risk. And people that own Bitcoin are owning a stake in the 21 million maximum supply that can never be taken away from them, as long as the consensus rules don't change. And that allocation to a reserve asset that cannot be inflated away is something I think really has years and years and years to go in terms of adoption. So I think that, you know, we'll see right now, the owners of Bitcoin are mostly, you know, the early adopters. And now it's starting to be, you know, the high net worth individuals and family offices and hedge fund types. There's a <laughs> there's a ton more institutional money Behind that, that has not gotten involved yet. And so I'm talking about local governments, national governments, uh, supranational agencies, multinational corporations, sovereign wealth funds. Those types of actors all have some allocation to US treasuries, German boons, Japanese government bonds, British gilts. And why do they have those allocations? Because they need some allocation to the lowest risk asset to protect them, the rest of their portfolio. And I see Bitcoin over the long term playing that role as, you know, a digital gold, as it is commonly called. Some of those sovereign wealth funds and central banks and governments around the world, some of those guys have physical gold stored in vaults, whether it's their own or on deposit with some central bank somewhere. And the reason they have that gold is. Because gold, physical gold in your possession cannot be inflated away. And I really think the digital gold meme, while it has some shortcomings, is absolutely the best way to think about gold over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And maybe it doesn't become a widely used currency because people would rather keep it as a reserve asset in the same way that we don't see people using gold for commerce, even if it's paper gold or digital gold. They use fiat. A digital fiat for commerce so i don't know i honestly don't know if bitcoin will ever get to the commerce point but i genuinely believe it will fulfill its potential as digital gold and as a reserve asset across the world
0: there are you mentioned earlier your interest in austrian economics and your interest in gold there are you know austrian economists very prominent ones who are who haven't seen the bitcoin light yet so to speak or, or who who claim they have but are extremely you know vehemently anti-bitcoin and are are pro gold what is sort of the argument for for Austrian economic uh, economists who who favor gold to, to bitcoin and why in your opinion are they uh incorrect
1: well gold has very distinct advantage and that is a uh, multiple millennia yeah. history and track record and you know I can't I can't fault any Austrian for thinking that gold still is, you know, gold still should be the the base money for the world. But, you know, once I found out about Bitcoin, you know, it probably took me about, I don't know, six months to uh, to a year to really understand in my gut and in my heart that Bitcoin is obsolete. So I think I think gold will still have a role for for years and years to come and maybe forever as well uh, as a reserve asset but i think that that's backwards looking and and bitcoin is the
0: future yeah you mean that gold is obsolete and that bitcoin will it? i'm sorry
1: what did i say of course yeah gold. <laughs> i yeah. <laughs> yeah okay let's ho- let's hope bitcoin isn't obsolete no i do i do i have you know embrace the fact that i do believe gold is obsolete
0: On, uh, on that note, Nick, I'm sensitive to your time. This has been a, this has been an awesome episode. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Hey, uh, thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate it and, uh, look forward to doing it again.
0: Perfect. Nice speaking with you, Nick. Okay. Thanks, guys. Have a great night, Nick. Talk to you soon. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.